0: A year and a half ago, I recorded this interview with Victorian-era boxing and wrestling historian Sarah Cox, but the audio was badly distorted by a bad internet connection, but I was finally able to recover and fix the audio, and I'm sure you'll agree that it was worth the wait. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swims. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Hey there everyone, this is Nick Gosser from Pro Wrestling History Nerds, and we are back with a special interview episode. I met our guest through the weirdest and most awkward of circumstances. A while back, Chongo and I covered the life of Evan the Strangler Lewis, and there was an opponent of his that I mentioned in passing. Turns out that I had his name wrong and his story wrong, having only come across it in a biography of Lewis. Soon after, I received an email from someone who claimed to be a London-based historian and sent me all of his research. I use sarcastic quotes around his research because it sure as heck wasn't his. Turns out he was plagiarizing someone else's hard work. And did me and the real historian get into a ferocious internet fight? Nope. We actually became friends because being a history nerd is all about passion and enthusiasm for the subject of our obsessions. So it's really quite exciting to have the real expert on Jack Waddup and the British wrestling scene of the late 1800s as a guest, the writer behind grapplingwithhistory.com, Sarah Cox, how the heck are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. I'm just very, very tired from watching WrestleMania last night on English Time, so uh, we uh, we don't kick off until 1am here, <laughs> how are you?
0: And that is the dedication of wrestling fans. We were talking before hitting record about how American fans do a similar thing, setting an alarm to wake up at a crazy hour to watch the bigger New Japan shows. Again, thank you for being here. Sarah runs an amazing website where she is the researcher. She is the author. She is the voice for boxers and wrestlers somewhat lost to history, grapplingwithhistory.com. Please tell us all about it.
1: So grapplingwithhistory.com started out as um, well, it starts out as a project for my master's degree. Um, in my early thirties, I had a little, little crisis. I'm a, a press officer for a university by day and, and my job is promoting other people's research. And I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. I wanna do my own research. I didn't really know what I wanted to do research on. Um, I enrolled in a master's degree in history and I somehow uh, and I, I'll share this story with you but um, I found myself studying uh, wrestlers and boxers in 1880s south and East London um, and quite specifically uh, a man named Jack Wannup <laughs> which I pronounce Wanup, <laughs> and I think I corrected you on um, from your from your blog post but it will it will vary depending on your accent um grappling is a place where I um, it's, it's my channel for, for presenting my research into Jack and lots of other men and a couple of women that he knew he fought he hung out with and the kind of unifying theme is that these are wrestlers and boxers from the 1880s and 1890s who are not have not been remembered by sports history. Um, And specifically some of the black um, uh, African-American and Jamaican boxers who were here in London in the 1880s who, when you look up black boxers, you might get Peter Jackson, but you don't find any of these other guys. So I research them. I write stories about them. I write kind of narrative stories that um, this is not academic writing by any means. and uh, yeah, so while it started off mostly being about Jack Wannock, it's now grown into it more of a, a, it's like a group biography, I like to call it, um, using old newspapers and records, um, family history kind of records, um, to, to try and piece together these, these guys' lives. Um, so I'm essentially stalking. I stalk men who died a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I write about them. Professional, professional
0: stalker slash historian. And what was it that drew you to this? Do you have an athletic background, boxing or wrestling? What was it about Victorian-era boxing and wrestling that made you say, yes, I am all about this, I am fascinated, I am all in? What drew you to this?
1: So about 1999 to 2002, quite a short period of time, I was in my mid-teens, and I was really, really into uh, WWE, what was then WWF. I taught myself HTML at 15 so I could write a, a fan website to Jeff Hardy. It was that level of, of mid-teen obsession. China was my icon. Um, yeah, I was kind of like, you know, 15, 16, 17. Um, and then after that, I dropped wrestling, really had no interest in it at all. Um, I, I moved on to other things. I was like 17. I started working in a restaurant, didn't have time for wrestling. And it was really hard to watch here at that time as well if you didn't have you know uh, Skype. Uh, Sky TV cable TV Um, didn't think about wrestling until September 2019 so just I'm just starting my master's degree this is is uh, that right? September 2, yeah, September 2019. And I read an article um, that a professor at Goldsmiths University where I work, so I worked there as a press officer. I was also studying for my master's there. I read an article that he had written about the history of a Victorian bathhouse, which is on our campus. It's right in the middle. It's now art studios. And years, back in the 1800s, it was a swimming pool and a public baths, And then over the years, it'd been used for loads of other stuff as well. The, the local Caribbean community, he'd used it for dances there were rock and roll uh, concerts on there and in this essay this is by um a chap called professor tim crook he uh he mentioned that in the 1970s there was wrestling on there and this is a kind of like the big daddy giant haystacks the heyday of british wrestling um in the late 1970s and i thought oh that's interesting i don't really know much about this don't know much about british wrestling at all um, <laughs> it's such a long-winded story, I'm sorry. but uh, And then I looked, um, we have an archive of historic British newspapers here called uh, the British Newspaper Archive, which you can subscribe to. And I thought I'll look up uh, Newcross, which is Newcross in Southeast London, which is where we're based. I'll look up Newcross, uh, and wrestling see what I can find maybe there'll be some pictures from the 1970s or some some, you know um some listings of shows from the old from the old newspapers what I found instead was loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff about wrestling in Newcross in the 1880s um I hadn't set the kind of date boundaries which you need for when when you're doing any kind of um newspaper research so all this stuff's coming up about the 1880s um and I kept seeing the same name over and over again Jack Wannup or John Wannup. he was, you know, lots of people um, who who are Chris and John are known as Jack. I just saw this name over and over again, and and then I googled him. I was at the pub by myself at this point, so <laughs> there was some beer involved in this bizarre research hole that I went down. Um, I googled him, and I couldn't really find anything at all. There was one reference to a J Wannup of Newcross on the Wikipedia article for catch wrestling the history of catch history of catch wrestling um, and and that was about it really. I found one article about Evan Strangler Lewis um, and, and a brief reference to Jack which wasn't very, very complimentary um, and I didn't really yeah nothing else and yet there's 600 700 800 newspaper articles over the 1880s and 1890s about this guy and I decided then that I was just going to get really back into wrestling again um and I set up my blog to start writing about Jack I set up a Twitter account and I started following wrestling I hadn't watched any televised wrestling at this point or any live wrestling since uh, something like 2001 I went to the Bedford Corn Exchange and a very drunk probably Jake the Snake Roberts nearly fell on me um (laughs) But, uh, I hadn't really yeah I hadn't had any interest at all in wrestling until then this and by March 2019 so it was 2018 I set the blog up not, not 19 um I had joined a women's wrestling school and started going to training <laughs> so I was like right I'm not just going to be a researcher I'm going to go full you know full throttle and actually try and do this um uh I, I started going to the Eve Academy, which yeah, was in Bethnal Green and is now we've lost the venue for uh, because of coronavirus. Um, I started doing that. Um, I started spending every waking moment researching wrestling um, in the 1880s. And I started watching modern wrestling. Um, I started going to wrestling shows in London, um, obsessively watching stuff on YouTube. Um, yeah. And two years later, I'm still at it.
0: It's funny mentioning Jeff Hardy. Um, obviously, before uh, COVID, for my, the all-women show that I run, WWE was doing a house show in Denver at the same time, and he hit me up like, hey, any interest in having me come play some music? So we had the very strange combo of an all-women's uh, wrestling show with an amazing main event between Sue Young and our champ, Aligato, followed by a Jeff Hardy meet and greet, followed by him playing covers till like 2 o'clock in the morning. Very nice man. Very nice man. He was a heck of a guy to hang out with. (laughs)
1: Oh, that sounds like my dream, my dream night, to be honest. I'm still obsessed. One thing I really love about being 34 and watching wrestling now is seeing there's so many people that are still around who I was watching it, you know, 20 years ago. I love that. It's just, you know, I, I'll turn on the TV. Billy, Billy Bloody Gunn is still on TV, <laughs> pushing, pushing 60. Um, yeah, Chris Jericho, Jeff Hardy. I'm just, I, I never thought... My beloved China is obviously no longer around, but um, I love that that 20 years, 20 years later. Um, And it is a parallel that you see in the 1880s. Jack Wanup, for example, is wrestling from the late 1870s, possibly earlier. um, And his last match in London that I know of was 1904. So, you know, (laughs) it's not just the the long guy, uh, the the modern guys who are stringing their careers out.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, something you do see in most combat or simulated combat sports depending on what era we're looking at and what sport because one of the hardest things for somebody who has been in the ring is to step away from the ring both for psychological and often financial reasons you'll see a guy hit their mid-30s when they're the top of the world legitimately or showbiz related uh, championships around their waist and they lose and then suddenly it's six years down the road and they've got a on paper terrible record because they did not know when to walk away. Um, clearly that doesn't translate as a negative in the pure showbiz era of wrestling, but in legitimate combat sports, who oh boy, can that be a bad thing for the body, the brain, and the soul. Um, moving back to your topic du jour of Jack Wanup. So yeah, so I first heard the name of Jack Wannup as Jack Wannick. And that comes from a biography of Evan Strangler Lewis that we have discussed. And it's very strange that the name got butchered so badly, but it's also understandable, I think, to some of the more, what's the nice way to put it? Lazy researchers who, you know, will kind of gloss over these minor characters. But this is something I I think we very much have in common. Where sometimes you see those minor characters, those little historical asides, and see the potential for a deep, rich story there, that you end up getting sidetracked on, and end up falling in love more with these, you know, part little little parts, uh, you know, little players in the big story. Um, It's kind of like when I was researching uh, Frank Crozier for an upcoming episode, and. My poor wife has to deal with me running in being like, hey, did you know that at the 1908 Hengler Circus Tournament, Frank Crozier lost to Sam Anderson, who in turn lost to Henry Erslinger, who was one of the few people to legitimately beat Mitzio Mieda, who taught judo to the Gracie family. <laughs> and my poor wife has to go, That that's nice, just go back in your office, play some more. But those, those little bit parts, those characters in the big famous stories often have better stories than the main characters, as you've discovered in your research of Jack Wannup.
1: Mm. So I would argue very much that Jack is not a minor character in any way. And that's what I've I've come to, to sort of realize over the last two years of research. In terms of American wrestling history, yes, he is. He went to America in 1888, he was there for um, just over a year. He fought Evan the Strangler Lewis, um, didn't didn't really make the best of that opportunity. And there are reasons for this, which I'd be happy to actually explain. I can read you part of an interview that Jack did when he returned. Um, but he's there for a year and a bit. He mostly boxes, actually, because he was a boxer as well. He was boxing in London from the early 1880s onwards. Um, he he wins some, he loses some. He loses to George Godfrey, who was the black heavyweight champion uh, boxer uh, who lost. He just lost to Peter. He just lost his title to Peter Jackson. Jack loses to him just before he returns to England. So, you know, he, in America, he never really made that much of an impact. Now, in... England, I would, I would argue that Jack Wanup is not only the most famous or one of the most famous, certainly the most famous wrestler in London for at least a decade, if not one of the most famous wrestlers in uh, the country, Um, definitely in the south of the country for for many years. Um, And he actually had a really big impact on the development, the history of wrestling and the way that it moved from, well, historically, hundreds and hundreds of years of folk wrestling where every man in every other part of the country has a different style of wrestling. You've got your Lancashire, you've got your Cornish, you've got your Cumberland and Westmoreland, Greco-Roman coming in. Um, he bridges the gap between that and, and catch wrestling, which then 20 years later is the most popular, your hack and, and your Gotches in the early 1900s, it's the most popular form of entertainment in Britain. For me, Jack Warnock is that missing puzzle piece. So I wouldn't say he's a minor character, (laughs) basically. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Where where are we going? Where are we going with that?
0: Um, Well, we were going, I mean, you, you flashed it out perfectly that, you know, you have one person's story and there's a character in it that's only there for a moment, But that one piece, when taken in its its own context, is a masterpiece unto itself. You know, it's kind of like we just did a big story on uh, Mildred Burke. And now I'm starting to do more research on June Byers, who was her arch rival and hated nemesis. And her story, from her perspective, is a whole different, you know, whole different version. It's very much the uh, the Roshamone effect of perspective. And the, it, it's so fun to get immersed in these lives. Um, but yeah, you talk about uh, uh, wanna being, would you say he was a better boxer than a wrestler?
1: probably not he he's better known as being a wrestler um he starts off um his first kind of you first come across him in the newspapers in the late 1870 1879 1880 1881 and he wins the london prize uh, uh the cumberland and westmoreland society event which used to have a big wrestling event which would happen in london uh once a year and it's mostly northern men who competed he then um has he, he puts on this big wrestling match in Deptford in South London in 1883 and after that he's known as he's really known as a wrestler um, but he's boxing this whole time um, one thing that's really interesting about London at this time is all the men are really small there's hardly any heavyweights and Jack Wanup was five for eight and a half and weighed, I mean, at the start of his career, he was about 12 stone. And later on, he's about 13 and a half stone. I don't know what that is in American, in, in pounds. Um, it's not much, it's, it's, it's really small for a, but that was considered a heavyweight. And London's boxing scene at this point, and it's wrestling scene, there's not many heavyweights. Um, a couple of Jack's pals, um, George Brown, who was five foot seven and weighed best part of 20 stone. Um, but he's he's boxing he's boxing really prolific prolifically at this point um as well so it's really interesting there's a few newspaper articles you'll find where he's referred to as a rare example of a boxer wrestler it wasn't particularly common um but it was something that a lot of guys at this point in london are doing really just to earn money um i mean they're boxing they're in boxing matches every week the prizes for these things are this is a time where an average man might earn 50 pounds a year and you can box for five or ten pounds in a pub back room, or 200 pounds in a big competition. I mean, colossal sums of money, relatively. Um, Jack's a carpenter by trade, so he's probably not making a huge, you know, making a huge amount um, in his day job um it's really interesting actually he never ever refers to himself as anything other than a carpenter um, in census records which go i've got from the 1870s until he dies in 1923 and he's always always a carpenter he's never a wrestler. i mean he he um he's known as a wrestler for 25 years he's known as a boxer for sort of um at least 10 years um he runs several gyms in new cross as well and he's actually referred to as the most popular man in new cross which i really like um new cross is this area in southeast london near where i live now near where, Gold, where goldsmiths is um he runs a gym there he trains men in catch wrestling specifically um and this is a time where catch wrestling is not well known here it's it's um It's only recently been developed. No one here is doing catch wrestling and Jack's training people. He's he's training boxing as well. Um, He runs three gyms, he sets up his own gym and his gym was actually the site of several really high profile boxing and and wrestling matches including the British Heavyweight Championship in 1891. Um, So he's kind of known, he's like a jack of all trades. Ah, literally a jack of all trades. Um,
0: (laughs) And question, um, during this period, Boxing in England's kind of a new point of study for me. At this point, is it still London prize rules or has it been progressed to the murky rules?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because, so the Marcus of Queensbury rules come in uh, uh, 1867, but Jack and his his pals, I would call the kind of, uh, I've actually just written an article called The Last of the Bare Knuckle Boys, they are still Jack is is um he prefers fighting without gloves. Um there are still bare knuckle championship matches happening up until 1891. Uh Jem Smith is the British heavyweight champion at this point, and he was always known as a knuckle fighter. He um, really hates using gloves, and in yeah, the 1891 match um against Ted Pritchard, which happened at Jack's gym, um he is it's one of the first times he uses gloves and he, he actually lost. Um, he lost the championship. So it's it's really interesting. You will find boxing matches that go on for like two hours, you know, these 100 round matches, the stuff of legend, That you know, the, the John L. Sullivan era. Um, And, and, and then it's kind of like, yeah, every, every match is different. So some, some will do, some will still stick to London rules. Some will stick to Queensbury rules. Um, It's a really, really interesting time. Jem Smith, um, is uh, who, who won it for um, did he lose against Jem Smith? He did, he lost against Jem Smith. Um, is is a really in, I mean, he he's always bringing in wrestling tactics into his matches. He lost to he lost the inaugural Commonwealth title to Peter Jackson, um, because he used a wrestling move on him and um, uh, got disqualified.
0: Frank Gotch did the same thing in Alaska during his one attempt at boxing, uh, a theme I, I've noticed in. You know, research of, of wrestlers from this era who tried to box is, boy, when they get hit a couple of times and end up in that clinch, there's going to be a disqualification coming up very fast from a big throw. <laughs> Seems to be a late motif of wrestlers attempting to be boxers during this era. Uh, w- one thing I've been very fascinated learning more about the history of boxing in America is how illegal and seedy it was in the United States in the 1800s, where most states it was illegal. So you would have these big, gigantic boxing stars and, you know, in our cultural memory, we would assume they're in this big stadium. Instead, they're boxing on a farm somewhere in South Carolina. So the sheriff can't find them because these were not legal bouts. It makes me think about the early days of the UFC and mixed martial arts here in the States as well, where You know, like my first MMA fight was on an Indian reservation in New Mexico because no state would sanction them at that point. So it's very interesting to see the history of boxing in England where it was more integral to the culture.
1: Yeah, it is, it's illegal here though. Prize fighting here is illegal. It's really interesting because um, it, it is illegal and yet every newspaper is covering every detail of all of these fights. Um, we have multiple sports newspapers such as the Sporting Life and the Sportsman which go into, you know, graphic detail. Every, every punch thrown in every match all of the local newspapers, the regional newspapers, the national newspapers. It's just this completely open secret. Um, we certainly have that CD. Um, CD back a lot of the i mean gym uh, a lot of the gymnasiums um, are in the kind of back rooms of pubs and they might hold a couple of hundred people um, but uh, even big t- even big title fights might only be watched by like 40 or 50 or 100 people um, but then you've also got boxing and wrestling on in not stadiums but big theaters um, m- more towards the end of the decade and kind of music halls as wrestling is starting to move from being legitimate to being a burlesque kind of entertainment, um, it, it moves into these more respectable venues. It's, you know, re- boxing is illegal, and yet you've got the Prince of Wales, Queen Victoria's um, son uh, um, putting on, getting his own nights of boxing organized just so he can meet John L. Sullivan. Yeah, you've got wealthy, very wealthy gentlemen who are backing their favorite boxes and paying the purses for them to, to essentially like, a, like privately perform for them. Um, so it is a, it's a really, really interesting time. I wanted to, when I started grappling with history, I really, really wanted to stick to wrestling. And I wanted to stick to wrestling before uh, the, the gotch era, really the 1880s and nineties, because I thought that was an era that had been less studied, you know, and like the gotch era had been done. Um, but I just keep getting sidetracked by boxing. I really do. And a, a lot of the men that I've been researching, particularly the, the African-American boxers here, just have these incredible, absolutely, fascinating lives like in my head I've I, I've built them all up I I start from a point where I assume everyone that I research is um uh, a good a good man right and Jack Wannup is there he is spotless I'm sure <laughs> I've spent two and a half years on him he's arrested once for an assault um, outside a pub and even in in courts is found not guilty and in fact the the court hears that Jack actually helped the victim and gave him his hat back you know Jack is a stand-up guy he's like this pillar of the community um but a lot of the other people I research it is a really seedy underworlds um of immense poverty um just yeah you know horrible living conditions there's every time someone disappears from the newspapers for more than a few months or like a year at a time, they're either in hospital with some hideous disease or they're in prison for robbery, assault, beating up a girlfriend, beating up someone that they were um, uh, trying to rob, um, drunk and disorderly in the street. Um, it's a really, um, and, 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 and early deaths as well. You know, they're all dead at 35, 28, 40, um, it's, uh, it's quite depressing. I, I sort of thought when I started this, it was going to be a fun project. And it is, it is a fun project. But you see, you see this, you know, the way that people, people lived then, this really difficult, um, it would have been a really difficult life.
0: Yeah, like it's very similar when I've been studying the New York wrestling scene in the 1880s, 1890s and early 1900s, where it was, yeah, I mean, almost a gangster movie. It's it's not fun sporting times. You do have, again, some fairly upstanding people like uh, William Muldoon for the most part. But it's a lot of, oh, here's this pub owned by a former bare knuckle boxer who's now a gangster who fixes fights and want to have this decision overturned by holding a gun to the judge's head. I mean, it's it can almost be true crime and. As pro wrestling as history, because it's a very tight Venn diagram of the three.
1: Mm. So, on that note, I, um, I, I hear from Jack Wanup when he returned from London. In, uh, sorry, I hear from Jack Wanup when he returned from America in uh, 1889 that that was the sort of situation that led to him losing the match against Evan the Strangler Lewis. Um, I just want to, let me try and find, I'm going to try and find the newspaper article, I saved it the other day. Um, mm -mm 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 -mm. Because I just think, I think, I don't want to, I don't want to give Ken Zimmerman the final word on this match. (laughs) So, when Jack returned from America this is April 1889 uh, the Sporting Life newspaper which is our it's probably Britain yeah it's definitely Britain's biggest newspaper at this point it's a newspaper that really champions Jack and his career you I mean most of my sources he's he features in in, in all kinds of newspapers here um and the 88-89 tour is is in a lot of American newspapers as well but the Sporting Life is where I get most of my Jack stuff from. Um, when he returned, I'm just going to read this, oh, my! Right. when he returned, um, there's a article published, quite a long one, called Jack Wanup's American Experiences. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read the, the intro, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> the modesty, and I can't even pronounce this word, hang on, the modesty and taciturnity of Jack Wannup is proverbial, and on interviewing him on Saturday last, something like the following was extracted from him with considerable difficulty. You see, he's he's quite, um, he's very modest, Jack. Um, (laughs) You know, began Wannup, I was doing very well before I went to America last year, but after listening to the blandishments of Pasco, who cruelly deceived me at the flush, I thought a wider field would be open to me on the other side of the Atlantic. I received a rude awakening when I reached Chicago to wrestle with Lewis, the Strangler. The men who had me in tow, I soon found out were Lewis's friends. And to crown it all, turned out that Pasco stood in the relation of uncle to the Strangler. 3 um, that's, that's, that's a quote from Jack. And then back to the article. Three months was the Englishman kept dangling about before the trial with Lewis could be brought off. And so disgusted was Carkeek, Jack Carkeek, um, at his own friend's treachery in bringing up to America for the purpose of enhancing the reputation of his nephew that he refused to attend the so-called match. Yeah, so Jack Carkeek is friends with the Strangler and he he realised that Jack Wanup had only been brought over to make uh, the Strangler look good, essentially. It was somewhat of a fixed match and Karkik was so disgusted that he refused to attend. Um... And uh, Akaki and Wanapa are acquainted and, and, and fight each other, uh, I think, at a later date. Um, so basically what happened was um, in another article, not this one, there's reference to Jack being um, intimidated by um, the Chicago boys associated with um, Evan the Strangler Lewis and he's also left waiting three months for this match. He arrives in America and he's not really got the opportunity to train and he's just kind of thrown into it. Um, so yeah, I just I just thought that was interesting. The, um, he went to America under the premise that he was gonna be matched with uh, not just the Strangler but various other people. He's really struggled to get a match in the UK for about three years since, um, yeah, like 1885. Um, particularly at catch wrestling because he's one of the only people that's actually performing in this kind of style Um, and I think he was he arrived in America under the impression that this was going to be a good match for him and it it wasn't, the whole thing was kind of set up just to make Lewis look good which is not what Jack was expecting (laughs) so yeah I think I'll I would need to articulate that a little bit better perhaps but I just thought it was interesting. There's also some, there's there's some accusations that Jack, I think this might be in the Zimmerman book, um, that Jack Wanup had been drinking before the match and that's just not like him i know jack i've been i've been researching him for two years it's not like him i feel some of the press coverage about tours is very much one sided they're going to be rooting for the american guy right not the english guy
0: yeah yeah that did come from the uh, the zimmerman book but uh, as stated if he can't even get the man's name right i can't expect him to get his behavior correct as well there is
1: there are um so i've accessed quite there's a um a re- i don't know if you have you've got the the Library of Congress database of newspapers um it's, it's awesome actually because it's completely free um but I've read pretty much everything there is to read on Jack and the, and the tour um the 88 tour and yeah there are there are references to him apparently being seen by a barman to be drinking before the match um and I don't believe it at all I think that was media I think that was media spin um trying to make the Brits sound
0: bad I I certainly wouldn't put it past them one thing I I do want to get your perspective on because we keep talking about catch wrestling and in our normal episodes we talk about it a lot but for people who may be listening to the show for the first time uh, from an English perspective how would you describe catch wrestling um so I
1: mean um I'm not a I'm not a I'm not an expert I'm not forensically detailed on every aspect of every traditional folk style of british wrestling but we have many we have lancashire cornish cumberland and westmoreland um and catch i as far as i understand it as in catch hold catch you catch as catch can you can catch a hold of a man or woman um anywhere you like below the waist above the waist right and it derives from lancashire wrestling which is that's the rules with lancashire wrestling um the history of catch wrestling is really um it's really confusing and it's really um cloaked in myth i think if you, if you google just google you know history of catch wrestling it's different everywhere you look it's different from the american's perspective and the british perspective um as far as um actually kind of like you know academic research into it it's it's um only in the last couple of years that anything has really been published uh, as far as I can tell. So yeah, I mean, if you read, if you're reading, um, if you're reading newspaper articles in the 1880 or early 1880s, you won't really see much catch wrestling going on. It's not popular here. Uh, wrestling is very regional. Um, men from Cornwall and men from Lancashire and men from the Cumberland and Westmoreland region they do wrestling in their own particular style. A lot of them come down to London. Um, there's a lot of Northern men in London. They bring their style of wrestling with them. Where Jack wannop fits in, he's a Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestler by training. He grew up in, in he was born in Crosby uh, on Eden, which is in, the, yeah, in that region. Um, but He's prolific in pretty much any wrestling style. And a lot of the big names at this Point, like George Steadman are they can wrestle in Greco-Roman, they can wrestle in Lancashire, they can wrestle in Thumberland and Westmoreland. Um, and it's it's a bit of a mess because you've got you usually end up with like uh, th- three rounds where they do one round in each style, um, like three fours in each style. Um and uh what Jack's trying to do is I think I see catch as being essentially the development of a London style of wrestling. Because London doesn't have it doesn't have this regional tradition like Cumberland and Westmoreland region or the Cornish region does. Um, so I see it as him trying to essentially pioneer a London style of wrestling which, um, pun intended, catches on eventually. It just takes a little while and that's why Jack, I think, never really gets the credit for what he was doing because by the time catch wrestling becomes really popular around nineteen oh two that's just when he's at the end of his career he's like forty you know he's forty eight years old at this point
0: yeah it's it's very interesting because it does seem like catch wrestling history didn't become important until the last couple of decades when you had men coming from the uh you know the Wigan school kind of trying to codify and lionize uh that you know their trainers and their trainers, trainers and their trainers, trainers, trainers. So you'd have men like Carl Gotch taking it to Japan and men like Billy Robinson, uh, you know, teaching this style that had a lot of overlap with Brazilian jiu-jitsu when Brazilian jiu-jitsu started becoming a big worldwide phenomenon. So it seemed like everybody had their opportunity to grab as much of the of the grappling pie, if you will, for legitimacy, fame, and importantly, history. And speaking of history, uh, we did say catch a man or catch a woman in a hold. Another person, you have done some great research about is Juno May. And I'd really like to talk to her before we have to uh, call it quits for the day. Tell me about Juno May. Tell everyone about Juno May and why they should think this woman is awesome.
1: Yeah, so um I um I'd really only been researching men. Um there are a handful of, of women boxers in the eighteen eighties in London, which um is fascinating and I and I'm writing about two of them at the moment, but I, I, I kept getting asked um particularly because I'm going to wrestling school myself and learning to wrestle, had I found any female wrestlers. Now, during my core period, 1880 to kind of 1895, no, I haven't. Um, You get the occasional newspaper story about um, a woman, a woman throwing a, a bloke across the room, usually after some kind of drunk argument, but in terms of proper female wrestlers, no. And then around 1902, there's this boom in le- what, what is called in the newspaper the lady wrestler, and it's I I, and I would credit Antonio Pieri, the terrible Greek, um, who um, is wrestling here. Um, oh, I know I know he was around sort of 1890. I don't know any earlier than that, but he's a wrestler, but he's also a manager, and he's really keen on finding the latest what i would call gimmick i know that's really disrespectful to women wrestlers but this is a point 1902 where wrestling now is essentially sports entertainment it's moved into music halls it's moved into theaters and the lady wrestler um is a big attraction and antonio Pieri tours 1902 with um, a troop of lady wrestlers um In 1906, he issues a press release about his latest discovery, which is Juno May. And she is, so the same information appears across every newspaper in the country. This was like a sensation. She's six foot two, which to me as someone who's almost six foot is actually not, I'm like, so what, right? But at this point, you know, like I said earlier your average heavyweight boxer or wrestler, male, a heavyweight boxer or wrestler, is only about five for eight, you know. Um, we are an undernourished nation of, of weeds, um, and uh, this six foot two statuesque, uh, curvaceous woman, she's 252 pounds, um, from South London, actually from um, about 20 minutes walk uh, where Jack Walnip is from. Um, she, uh, she bursts onto the scene in the newspapers, And uh, lots of newspaper columnists kind of have their very, very sexist of their time um, views on her. She's described as beautiful, uh, you know, sort of powerful and muscular and curvy, but also very delicate and ladylike. She's got very small feet and hands. I don't know why we need that detail in the newspaper. (laughs) Um, Lovely blue eyes and dark hair. and uh, she has, so this, is, um, this is around October 1906, November 1906, there's this brief flurry of publicity. At the end of the year, she has a few matches um, at various music halls in London, um, where she beats, she, she beats everybody. She beats female wrestlers, She beats male wrestlers. So I'll read you a couple of of bits from um, the Sportsman newspaper. Um, uh, Her physique and proportions are interesting. She stands six foot one and turning the scale at 18 and a half stone. It will be understood that she's no bantam weight when she comes to fall on a man and pin down his shoulders in the best Greco Roman style. Her age is 22 and a half years, although, because of her great size, weight, and muscular development, she looks older. One saw at a glance that she is admirably pr- proportioned, but when asked whether the, d- the development of flesh all represented hard muscle, Antonio Pieri, who trained this Juno, replied emphatically and with great contempt for the insinuation, Of course. Her wrestling attire is both up to date and practical. That is to say, skirts are not in any way permitted to enter into the argument. So she's a uh, she's on she's on stage, and this is 1906. Dressed in essentially knickerbockers, kind of loose pants, a uh, sleeveless blouse, and maybe like some, some leather boots, um, so she can she can move around easily. Um, and uh, yeah, so 1907 early early nineteen oh seven, she's at um, music halls in East London, and then goes to Ireland, and she's um, she's she's um, performing at the Empire Theatre in in um, Dublin, in Ireland, and a few months later, she just disappears. Um, I'm I'm searching through old newspapers. Um, using every kind of search term that I can find. And I can't find any sign of her looking at Library of Congress in the American newspapers. There is some evidence to suggest that she went to America. There's there's various articles saying Juno is coming. We have our own female wrestlers and our own lady wrestlers here. Who's Juno going to meet? How's she gonna do? There's lots of stuff about how she um she would never find a husband in America because she's just far too big and intimidating, which <laughs> is frankly infuriating. Um so my sisters, my sister's six foot one and I'm like five foot eleven. So um reading this stuff is um is personal. Uh, <laughs> she um she, there's some insinuation there's one reference to an article where she's described as um a wrestler from the northwest which if she was still in england she wouldn't be referred to as a wrestler from the northwest because she's from southeast london so was she in northwest america at this point i can't find a single report on her actually wrestling in america so and then, and then there's nothing else after that about her wrestling back in England either. She just disappears. Um, now, what happens with a lot of the wrestlers and boxers that I research, particularly in the 1880s, they're, they're wrestling and boxing under pseudonyms. They don't use their real names. I've, I've searched for, there's no one called Juno May. broccoli. There's no one called Juno May in the UK, that's not her real name, it's clearly a pseudonym. I'm wondering if her name is June or Julie or Juliet or something like that. I'm looking for a woman who in 1906 was 22-ish years old, but maybe she's a little older because we like to knock off a few years and we all do, Um, and I can't find anything. often with, I mean, Jack Wannup is John Wannup. You'll find lots of Jacks are, are really John, lots of James, James are Jameses. Um, but I cannot find, I can't find out who she was. And I spent months and months and months on it. I found a family with the surname May uh, from Broccoli who had a daughter who would have been a couple of years older than Juno. Um, I found some pictures of her as an older woman. She looks quite statuesque. She looks a little bigger, uh, 10 inches taller than the woman next to her in the picture. I thought it doesn't not look like her. Okay, I'm just going to read, I'm going to read an article that appeared in the Minneapolis Journal in December 1906, so this is only a couple of months after she first, um, she first uh, is announced by, by Pieri in the newspapers. The headline is Juno is coming. This article honestly is shocking. It's high time for a lot of these four flushing heavyweight wrestlers to take up the trail leading to the lava beds. Nemesis is on their trail. Nem this time is coming in the person of Juno May, who's something of a matte artist herself, Juno was born in a poor but English family in Kent several years ago and like every other woman isn't any too fresh about telling her age although her press agent admits she's young and beautiful. She wrestles Greco-Roman style and has thrown every other woman in the world, that is every other woman who's screwed up the courage to try conclusions with her. She's anxious to meet any American Amazon at any ways and any man in America at 165 pounds. Right here is where we pause to put a crimp in any hope Juno may entertain of picking up a husband in America. Juno may be fair to look upon, but it will be a brawl lad who cuddles up to her and asks her to share his fate for life. Think of commanding any 252-pound woman wrestler with 14-inch biceps and six foot two of length to hustle up the wheat cakes. There's no real joy in any household where father isn't big enough to thrash mama if he wishes to no thin puny mere man would sail in to bump Juno's blonde tresses against the piano when she got sassy about the milliner's bills. A man would use diplomacy to get her to put a half nelson on the kindling splitting and a hammerlock on sifting ashes. Juno may make a big success in America and doubtless she will but as a bride on this side of the water it's a 100 to 1 shot that it's nix for Jew." So that is, that is how she was treated by the American press. And there's a little bit of this in the British press as well. It's frankly horrifying. Um, but what happened to her? I can't find any sign of her after the first year. She, she has, you know, there's all this PR bump about her throwing every woman in the world but there's almost no reports there's a couple of write-ups from a couple of shows at music halls it's all gimmick it's all um building her up as this character and then she disappears and so yeah I don't know what her real name was um I've made a habit of it takes me weeks and weeks sometimes to find out what a wrestler or a boxer's real name is but very often there will be some kind of reference in the newspapers that gives you a good a good clue or you can kind of figure it out from guesswork piecing together different bits of the puzzle um there's a boxer a black uh, jamaican boxer in in 1880s london called ching hook and it, I know his name's not Ching Hook because no one is called Ching Hook, right? It's not his real name. And then um, about midway, no, sort of eight years into his career, there's a reference in the newspaper to the fact his real name is Hezekiah Moscow. And from Hezekiah Moscow, I can find him on the census, I can find him in newspapers in his other job, which was as a bear tamer. He's taming bears as Hezekiah Moscow, he's boxing as Ching Hook. That happens quite a lot, or like I said, you can figure out that they're a Jack or a, a you know a John. I can't find head or tail of her. And I just, I'm desperate to know what happened to her. Pierre was well known as being someone who found the, the latest thing and then dropped them. And, and he dies a few years later as well. Um, and all I can think yeah. is maybe she did find a husband in America, <laughs> perhaps she, or, or found a husband here. And her name is Mary Smith or, you know, Joan, Jones, whatever, like, I don't know, and I'm desperate to find out, and I can't, you know, after months and months and months of research, I've not got any closer to to finding out, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm really hoping that um, someone, so, someone, you know, who heard from a great grandma that her sister was doing some kind of crazy showbiz thing before World War One, and, you know, like, I'll find I'll find a, a, re, a distant relative who heard about their six foot two great great aunt I don't know um I'm really like nothing's nothing's happened yet but It's really interesting, very very mysterious um but not unusual um I'm tracing a couple of female boxers in 1888-89 at the moment who are uh, named Vivian and Rosalind Mills but they're not, they're not named Vivian and Rosalind Mills, that's not their real name they're described as black, they're described as mixed race, they're described as Mexican South American they burst onto the scene in a couple of um, of matches and are given a good write up by the sporting newspapers, they, they fight each other in a boxing booth in Deptford um, and then disappear and, and I don't know where they've gone, I don't know what their real names are, it's um, it's, it's it drives me crazy and this is what i stay up until 3 a.m doing
0: (laughs) i'm in the same boat lately because i'm prepping an episode about uh african-american or caribbean black champions in the early days and vero small aka black sam from vermont another person who After they left the ring, there's like one or two mentions of them, and then he completely disappears even off the census in New York out after 1910. Or Frank Crozier, the Jamaican wrestler slash boxer who disappeared in spain during the civil war and that's one of those like was he blown up in a bombing did he go back to somewhere and live out a quiet life without any notice or notoriety and there's just you know these people once they leave the 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 spotlight back in those days you could literally vanish off the face of the earth if you didn't want to be found
1: yeah and this um this happens a lot um the um uh one one area of my research which has taken me off on a whole other project on top of the Jack Walton project is is um uh black american and caribbean boxes in london because um at this time the black community in 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 england is pretty small i think is estimate of around 10,000 people in the whole country mostly centered around a couple of cities london obviously um, and yet yeah, we have loads of black Boxes in London over the 1880s and 90s a surprising number um and and they're all using pseudonyms um and part of the reason for that would be that um they would have arrived as mariners um and and abandoned ship at the ports so they're starting a completely new life um they probably get in trouble if anyone caught them um it's really really interesting I didn't know anything about um Uh, race relations in in boxing we have a color bar in this country later on but in the 1880s it's anything goes you have two black champions fighting each other in headline events Um, you have black guys fighting white guys all the time Um, black guys running um, boxing gyms Um, I've not found any black wrestlers here yet actually Frank Crozier is probably the first person I come across Um, I've written about one other wrestler from the Edwardian period, uh, John Willie Price, who's actually a distant relative of mine. He, my grandma's sister married one of his 14 children. Um, and he's uh, he's a bit older than most of the wrestlers in kind of 1910 um, fighting. He's, he's from Lancashire area originally. Um, and the, the, in, in London he's like 40 and he's these guys are sort of 24 um, but Frank appears in, in some of those um, in a different weight class but he appears in some of those write-ups yeah <laughs> Juno May is a mystery to me a bit, big beautiful mystery and I'm desperate to find out she's my she's my China for <laughs> 2020 um, my wrestling hero as a slightly bigger woman
0: I love it. I, I've loved everything we've talked about, and I feel like you know, we've we've covered so much and talked about so many cool things. But we could probably also talk about this all day. But I don't want to steal your whole afternoon. You've got naps to take. You've got more wrestling to watch. I fully understand. Um, tell everybody about your website. I, I feel like everybody should be reading this. If you're into this type of stuff, your 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 site is a resource. Uh, beyond imagination for some people because you do the nitty-gritty. you do the hard digging. you you're out there with the uh, the the metaphoric shovel digging deep in the uh, the desert that is old media. Uh, just tell everybody about your site and why they should come check it out.
1: Um, So yeah, grapplingwithhistory.com, there are lots and lots of articles about Jack Wannup, short stories, longer stories, articles about his family. I've not written so much about Jack recently because I am planning a book. Um, The book is going to follow the kind of format of the website as essentially a group biography of, of Jack and men who are around in his circle of friends, and opponents and people he trained, people he fought with um, in this period in London. Um, But I have been writing Uh, short biographies, uh, which will later form chapters in the book, about lots of other people. So uh, Jack Davenport and Jem Haynes, who are two very um, well-known, they're both Black American um, boxers in London. Uh, Ching-Hook, I've written like three articles about, he is fascinating and he is the only one I have a really amazing photograph of, um, which I found in the National Archives here in London. Um, Gino May, um, John Willie Price, who I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a couple of other stories at the moment about um, the sisters Mills who I mentioned and Alf Ball who's a boxer around the same period and Alf actually ends up becoming a pioneer of cinema running a running a a mobile cinema in the early 1900s and I just kind of like I dump the cool stories that I find in the British newspaper archives on there I really really want to write fun stories with good fight scenes I have no interest in writing academic cultural and social analysis type history um, I want to write stories that read a little bit like fiction in a way um, that are just fun to read accessible to read you don't have to have some kind of advanced degree to understand the language <laughs> so and that's that's what I'm hoping to do with the book as well um uh, so yeah just just check it out i'd I'd really appreciate it i'm i've been quite overwhelmed at how popular some of the articles have been particularly about the black fighters um I get people from around the world contacting me. I've had several descendants of Jack Wannup contact me. He had 10 children. Many died young, so there weren't that many grandchildren. But there are, are, you know, descendants who've commented on the blog, who we chat with on WhatsApp now. Um, That's really cool. Um, I'm not going to be updating it as much as I used to because I do want to really get my head down and start on the book. I don't have a publisher or anything like that yet, but it's just something I just know I need to, <laughs> I know I need to start and I'll self publish if I have to, I'm not going to be snobby about it. There are so few books about British wrestling history in this country, which is, um, when I started the project, there was almost nothing. Um, Benjamin Liverland has written A History of Professional Wrestling, which is, it's quite an academic text, but it's, it's a really, really good read. Um, there's A History of Catch that came out about two years ago. Um, and other than that, it's, it's mostly more modern era, 1960s onwards, there's very little that's previously been written about this period, um, you know, the, pre, the pre-Gotch period, basically. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to piece together the stories of people that have no presence at all in boxing and wrestling history. Um, And um, uncovering some really, really like (laughs) amazing and very sad stories often as well. Um, There's a lot of, there's a lot of drama. Um, Grapplingwithhistory.com. And I'm on on, uh, Twitter uh, at wrestling 1880s as well. I post, uh, and you, post newspaper articles and, and various things on there.
0: And people should be following her on Twitter. Uh, she posts amazing things. I love everything you've posted. And I very much agree with your assessment of your own writing that you make it very accessible. It almost does come across as an exciting adventure piece of fiction, even though it is a completely true story. So... I'm a fan, and I think anybody who's going to check this out will be a fan, and we're all going to be very excited when that book is finally out and available to read. So thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Once again, this is Nick Oscar from Pro Wrestling History Nerds. For Sarah Cox, good night, everyone. Thanks for being here. (laughs)